welcome to Driving Discussions. In this series, we'll discuss the forces that affect road fuels globally. And in today's episode, we'll be discussing the highs and the lows of the year ending and what we can expect from the year 2021. My name is John Demopoulos, and I'm the Vice President for North American Oil Products here at Argus. And with me today is Stephen Jones, SVP for Oil Market Strategy at Argus. Hello, Stephen. Hey, John. Good to be with you. Likewise, great to have you, Stephen. So I wanted to start off this episode by just talking through some of the, the highs and the lows of the year that we've we've seen and, and that will shortly be behind us, uh, no doubt to many people's relief. We've had a pandemic, we've had uh, a US election, and we've had negative WTI prices, we've had swings throughout the energy industry. Give us a sense for how you see the year 2020 now that it's almost over. There's a lot that stands out when we kind of step back and reflect on 2020. It's been, you know, certainly a year for the history books. Uh, There's been numerous life-changing market-shifting events, and you mentioned a few of them. Obviously, the pandemic has had untold economic consequences, both in general economy, but the oil markets in particular. We've had social unrest, the political stresses from an election, all of which has dragged on the markets in the sense of consumer confidence. And and um, the biggest issue that really kind of stands out has been the unemployment situation that we can talk a bit about in a minute. But, you know, we've also had things like uh, devastating fires, floods and hurricanes. And the, the climate change agenda has really come into focus with a lot of these natural events that have happened on top of the pandemic and economic consequences. And so, you know, with hurricane effects on operations in the oil industry, offshore production, refining systems in the Gulf Coast and elsewhere around the world, it's been a pretty uh, life-changing year from that standpoint. We've had, you know, the, the most remarkable thing has been the drop in demand you know, we we lost almost 21 million barrels a day of of demand from December down to April alone, and demand for the year is going to be down almost 9 million barrels on average this year versus last year, 8.8 to be specific. And we're only recovering about you know 5 million barrels in 2021, uh, which is only about 60 percent or so of the total loss in 2020. So we're only clawing back, you know, less than two thirds of of the demand. And so I would say the demand drop really, really stands out. In the U.S. in particular, you know, demand fell 2.6 million barrels or a drop of 12 percent. And a good portion of that was in gasoline. You know, gasoline makes up 4 million barrels a day of our market. It fell by 1.7 million barrels and only rebounding by about a half million barrels at this point. So. You know, the drops have been tremendous. It just hadn't been, uh, you know, the demand side, the upstream, uh, the refiner processing, uh, the pace of industry's reaction to it and all was remarkable and really stood out early in the year. But it's been a very, very trying, life-changing year for everyone involved. It certainly has. And you mentioned some some pretty staggering numbers in terms of the demand drop that we've seen both across gasoline and jet and to a lesser extent diesel. But you also mentioned that, you know, although some of that's come back, not all of it's come back and not all of it's even expected to come back next year. And I, I guess my question is, is it ever all going to come back? Are we ever going to see the same volumes of 
conventional refinery produced jet fuel and the same volumes of conventional refinery produced gasoline that we were seeing prior to this pandemic? Yeah, I don't think it'll come back to what we would consider in the U.S. to be a baseline on a global basis. It's probably threatened as well. Uh, we do expect it to continue to rebound. And the real question becomes two factors to, to answer that. Uh, one is the vaccine and the pace at which it rolls out that allows the recovery uh, for businesses and economy and, and reemployment to occur. And ultimately, the job situation. How fast will the consumer sentiment and the investment in uh, in supply chains and so forth support uh, employment to rebound? You know, the job losses in the U.S. alone were nearly 15 percent, and it's you know the the job recovery has only tapered through November. We're still at uh, 6.7 percent unemployment in the states alone. And, you know, there's great losses across our entire energy industry, not just in upstream, but in downstream. But when you look at the broader economic circumstance, uh, there is a lot of optimism. Um, the vaccine's just starting to roll out. We've had a few emergency approvals. Uh, it's starting to be already uh, pre-manufactured and already located in places for distribution. And the question that many analysts have been trying to answer is how fast will that occur? And just in the last week or so, here we are in the uh, latter part, mid part of December, we're seeing uh, analysts revise their expectations that a large portion of developed economies will have the vaccine by the first third of the year. Uh, that is a tremendous upside to the economic outlooks than, than people had just as short a period of two weeks, three weeks ago. There's a lot to be optimistic about, but we still have a very dark winter to get through and a lot of volatility and uncertainty with a sentiment of positive developments that ought to help carry us through the, these next few months to have a very clear picture of what this recovery might look like come January, February timeframe. We're going to have a vaccine, and as you say, we've seen um, first the UK and then um, other countries, including the United States, starting to roll that out. Uh, are we going to see, uh, and I know that we've talked about this before, but are we going to see that gradual increase in um, vaccine-based immunity translating into the kind of transportation activity that leads to, you know, gasoline mm. demand and jet demand. Are we actually going to see people within 2021 getting back on airplanes, for recreational business trips and getting back in the car for those those road trips? So is that going to start happening anytime soon? I think it will come in steps and it won't be uniform across all modes of transportation. You know, from a diesel standpoint, the, the diesel hits weren't as great as they were for gasoline and certainly not as anywhere near gasoline or diesel as it was for jet fuel. And so as the vaccine rolls out, uh, the, the demand uptake is really going to be dictated by how rapidly governments uh, begin to uh, relieve the lockdown steps and the, uh, the conservative measures that have been warranted and taken aggressively to contain the spread of the disease, of the virus. 
Um, as the vaccines take effect, I think it will vary in each country, depending on the percentage of the populace that actually gets the vaccine. And we will start to see uh, sub-economies opening up within, but the international travel is likely to be the last part to really see the relief to allow jet fuel to come back. In the U.S., I think we'll start to see gasoline improving. Matter of fact, I suspect there's going to be pent-up demand, um, both in terms of just general travel, uh, commutes resuming, things of that nature. There is a school of thought from some very vocal, um, name-worthy individuals, uh, be it Bill Gates and others, that think that uh, the work from home is here to stay for um, the efficiencies and the demonstrated ability of it being, uh, you know, being productive for many segments of the economy. So we may not see a full return to, you know, previous status quo business as usual. But I think that's an overly conservative view. I think people are very humanistically connected to one another. They desire that social interaction, that need uh, to be productive and work together and interface. There is a pent up desire and demand for that to rebound. Um, and to a large extent, um, there's a good portion of our, our economy that can't work from home that has been affected by this, that will automatically rebound, be it uh, you know, restaurants and shopping and other things that have been disproportionately affected. So yes, simply put, demand is going to rebound. I think the big question is just to what degree and exactly what shape it takes in the year ahead. We talk about demand and we talk about the the likely path of um, of, of more gallons being sold at the pump or being put onto aircraft, but of course, that for, for the oil industry translates up the supply chain to um, a, a much bigger question about um, refinery run cuts, about um, the mothballing of individual units or entire refineries. And actually, in some cases this year, um, translates to the opening up of refineries that had been mothballed and are now just starting back up again. Can you give us a sense for you know how capacity has been changing in recent months and what we expect from 2021 in terms of um, refinery closures and, and even refinery openings if that's possible. Sure absolutely so you know in the U.S. we've had uh, uh, around 800,000 barrels a day of refining capacity that has shut down and we have another 800 or so thousand barrels a day that has been idled if not permanently, uh, will remain down. So we've got about 1.6 million barrels a day in the U.S. alone that's been um, affected by the pandemic demand loss and support for economics of throughput that make these assets uneconomic to restart anytime soon, if not just be permanently rationalized. In Europe, we're seeing similar circumstance. Uh, we have a lot of uh, lesser competitive refining assets that have historically been protected by, you know, government programs for basically jobs, employment issues. And uh, many of these assets have been converted over years to terminaling operations versus true upgrading and processing. Uh, that trend will continue, if not accelerate, in, in the year ahead. Globally, we have 
upwards of 2 million barrels a day of refining capacity that still needs to come offline to offset new capacities that are, are coming on stream. Most of it's in Asia uh, that, that has been planned for quite some time, and it's just coincidentally bad timing for these projects that were sanctioned, invested, and started to uh, be constructed to happen uh, simultaneously with the pandemic, the likes of which we've never seen that killed so much demand. So we've had a stretch where we lost demand while we were expanding capacity that put the balance of the weaker assets in the refining fleet at risk. And so what that's left us with is a lot of these assets that are being rationalized and some refiners being proactive to take their lesser competitive part of their portfolio offline, they're looking at redeploying them, the assets in, in uh, renewable fuels type dispositions. There's investments that are required to do that. Uh, we've seen the news with you know, Marathon, Holly Frontier, and others that are making uh, significant investments to convert assets to process renewable feedstocks. And that is basically allowing some of these capacities to be redeployed in a, uh, a different enterprise uh, process to take advantage of the energy transition and the regulatory pressure and the incentives to decarbonize, if you will. So, Stephen, I think we've covered the sort of short term and the recent picture, but what about the longer longer term impacts and you know maybe a few positive things that we've seen over the past year including this deluge of um, commitments from various companies various governments to clean up their act um, go carbon neutral um, and and leave leave the planet a, perhaps a, a better place than we might previously have expected. How how do you see the energy transition progressing um, following all of all of the changes that we have seen? Yeah, it's a good question. And the energy transition really has been a point of emphasis in in the last half of this year. There have been a lot of climate change activists and and motives to address. Uh, the energy transition aggressively while demand's down and implement plans and strategies to take advantage of the immediate loss of petroleum demand. But the realistic situation is that, you know, 85% of our energy demand is fossil fuel based as a, as a globe. And the large part of that is coal, but a, another major part of that is petroleum based fuel. And of that, a good portion, the majority is is transportation related. We still have the need for mobility. So we've got to find that right balance for an energy transition towards net zero uh, emission objectives that refiners and producers are already making and announcing plans as part of their ESG programs, environmental social governance programs. But the bottom line is that there are you know, physical constraints to the pace in which many of these steps can be taken. And at the end of the day, the consumer has to make these decisions, whether they can afford to support these initiatives overall. We have many uh, governments that are already progressing the ban of the sale of inter internal combustion engines. Uh, we have upwards of over a dozen countries that have already announced bans as early as 
2035, and you know, upwards of two dozen cities that have done likewise. And so the, the real question becomes in, in 2021 and beyond, as you know, the Biden administration looks at rejoining the Paris Climate Accord and industry itself begins to really adopt and announce and embrace aggressive net zero emission management plans. What will the consumer ultimately decide to do when faced with these options? Uh, and, and for that matter, the narrowing of constraints between uh, electric vehicles versus conventional fuel vehicles. I think there will probably be a pent up demand for car purchases with the unemployment. And so you know, the, cars, the cars that are sold today uh, ultimately be on the road for many, many years to come. And so uh, we have to begin working this as an industry aligned with the regulatory processes and government's aspirations to solve this problem, uh, to truly come up with a, a feasible plan that works across very diverse mobility markets to achieve the environmental policy requirements to, to manage climate change ultimately. Let me ask you, Stephen, uh, you know, we talk about banning the internal combustion engine. Uh, how comfortable are you that banning the internal combustion engine in the short term does provide an environmental answer rather than just shifting the environmental problem to other parts of the supply chain? Obviously, um, electricity production, mining of metals for batteries, all sorts of other things. Are we are we ready at this point to turn our backs on the internal combustion engine? And is it for the good of the environment? I think it will vary in different markets as to how ready the overall system and the consumer and then the net out of the emissions will ultimately uh, reflect uh, a progress, if you will, towards EV adoption. Or for that matter, I think that in the midterm to, you know, a, a midterm pathway fuel, we're likely to see hydrogen as a source of mobility fuel as much or more so than EVs in many markets. You know, putting in power charging stations for EVs in certain countries is just unfeasible. Uh, in developed countries, fine. In developing countries, not so good. Um, you know, hydrogen and in uh, canisters and whatnot, uh, where you can actually dispense it. And uh, the fact that you don't have battery complexity for the vehicle, they can be lighter, more efficient, better range. Uh, we already produce hydrogen in current refining systems and have ability to distribute it. The point being is that it, there is no singular answer, even though there is a lot of attention drawn to electric vehicles because they are, they are fun to drive, they are efficient, they, they are good for commutes and managing range and certain longer trips where you can use the, the programs to find your charging stations. But that's unique in certain developed markets. And they are some of the larger demand markets. However, we still have to have a, a, a very flexible portfolio of solutions if we're going to solve this problem. Uh, not everyone can be driving electric vehicles at the pace that would be dictated to achieve these emission targets otherwise. Absolutely. Stephen, thank you. It's been a, an extraordinary year in the oil markets and in the broader energy sector. And 
no doubt that next year will be um, perhaps not quite as extraordinary, but still an interesting one. Um, and we will continue to provide you commentary um, over the year ahead. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do be sure to tune in for other episodes in this series, Driving Discussions. And for further information about the refined products markets, please visit www.argusmedia.com.